Good evening. All right, let's uh, get into God's Word. Let's turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom, and it's an interesting book because it confronts many of the things that many people say is not in the Bible, like why do bad things happen to good people? Um, what is the point of life? What's the meaning of life? Do good people get frustrated when they have a hard time realizing what their purpose is? Lots of difficult questions that are answered in this book. And God gives us good direction, but chapter 7 to me is the culmination of the wisdom of this book. And so what we'll do is read a little bit here, and I'll just read this very first section. Um, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay at the heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise man into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. very first section, which we'll consider the first 12 verses, then there's a transitional point in verse 13 through 14, talks about wisdom and its value. Wisdom and the value of wisdom. We talk about wisdom, what is wisdom good for? Wisdom is good for everything that is life and godliness. That's a quote from my dad, and the whole thought of it is this, that the Bible is supposed to prepare us to live a better life and to prepare us for eternity. It's to prepare us for the people that we face. It's to prepare us for the situations that we see. It's to prepare us to make better word choices, to make better action choices, and ultimately to understand the spiritual ramifications of all the things that we do. So when you get into chapter 7, the first thing that you notice is he starts to look at some things that seem to be negative. The very first one is just a comparison. A good name is better than precious ointment. Well, you got to think about it in this way. When Mary Magdalene put that precious ointment on her hair, it said that it cost her basically her whole life savings to put that on her. So you got to think of it in this way, not precious ointment. We're not comparing it to lotion. We're comparing it to something that is worth saving up 30 years worth. A good name is worth what you saved up for for 30 years. 
And sometimes that's how much it takes to build a good name, right? Think of what it takes to build a good name for a reputation of being honest. What does it take to have a reputation of being a good person? But how quickly can that be damaged? And that's what makes it precious, right? It takes a long time of consistent action to have something that everybody wants. Everybody wants a good name, but not everybody wants to do the work that it takes to have a good name. But he's only using that to introduce the topic to say this, the day of death and the day of birth. How can death be better than birth? Well, let me say this. When we see better, maybe we should consider it to be more important then. Everybody is celebrated when they're born, but not everybody gets celebrated when they die. What's the measure of a person's life? How people rejoice when they're born or how people act after they die? That's the question. He says this. It's better to go to the funeral than to go to the party. Why? Well, what do you learn from the party? What do you learn from the funeral? It's a good question for us to ponder because we don't want to go to a funeral. All of us would much rather go to the feast. But he is saying that the funeral is more important than the feast. Let me tell you this. How many of us are expecting somebody to get saved on Super Bowl party? We pray, Lord, that this Super Bowl party would really lead to souls being saved. We pray, Lord, the impact of this birthday party would really reach the lost. Okay? Hey, so-and-so's been praying for these loved ones for a long time, and they died. We pray that they would hear the gospel and be saved. Which one is more likely? If you're wise, you can learn from one. It's really hard to learn from the other. And don't get me wrong, I've gone to a lot of parties, and I've, seen, I've learned some things from parties. But I can tell you, that when it comes to spiritual warfare, it's almost like God has given us the alley-oop when we go to a funeral. When you go to a party, you can't really get through to people. I remember somebody was trying to witness to somebody else at a party, and I just had to stop the guy and say, he ain't listening to you, he's drunk. <laughs> he ain't hearing a word you saying. I know the person was zealous, they was trying their hardest, but they ran into that principle of what does it take to prepare your heart to hear wisdom? says in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Now who here just says, man, tomorrow I really hope I'm sad? Nobody does. But what are you going to learn from? What will you learn from? Disappointments or constant success? By sadness of face, the heart is made glad. We've all been disappointed by certain things. It says in verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the house of fools is in the house of mirth. Again, it's getting to how much value does wisdom have? It's worth going through hardship to get it. 
Verse 5 is continuing that same thing. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for the man to hear the song of fools. Who wants to be rebuked? Nobody does, right? Nobody wants to get rebuked. But how many people can point to a rebuke as a turning point for them or a mark where their spiritual growth increased or when they saw something that they didn't see before? You don't see that from a song of fools. How many people turn on the radio and hear a song that really changed their life? When they turn on 98.3 or V100, you're not going to because those are the song of fools. Many times I'm sitting there listening to a song that I really like. I got it. And I, every once in a while, I, I accidentally pay attention to the words and I'm a little bit horrified. You ever got that point? You ever listen to a word, a song that you really like and then you listen to the meaning and you're like, man, I'm sitting there singing along, me and Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones. And then I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> right? We can all have that experience where we hear a song and it's utter foolishness. Right? We all drive. I've, today we were listening to a song at work. This guy turned on the song at work and it was saying something super disrespectful about women. But it was so disrespectful. It, I told the guy, I said, man, if this, could be, if this was said in public anywhere, you would get thrown in jail almost. Right? Because it was a rap song. And I was like, I was just thinking, like, how does that guy like get in the studio and say that, and then go to his female manager, and she'd be like, "Good job," <laughs> you know? And he go home to his wife, and be like, "Yeah, I worked hard today." Whew. Yeah. There was one song where this guy literally bragged about the fact that he slipped the molly in somebody's drink, and he 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 that was like his his selling line right there. And I was just sitting there like, wow, who, and we was talking about that, like, how did he get, get, get past his producers for him to say that? He lost a lot of endorsements saying that line. But you know what? He was feeling good when he said it. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of wives than to hear the song of fools. Many songs that you hear sound really good, but they're utterly stupid. I even love a lot of Marvin Gaye songs, but if you really listen to the words really closely, it's really stupid stuff. And that's old school, and it doesn't matter. Some people, we're going to get to this later, but some people want to act like the old songs got all this value and the new songs just got all this worthlessness. But when you listen to them close, the old ones just dress it up a little bit better. For the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. What does it take to make a fool laugh? But how many people really, really want somebody to laugh, right? How many people really, man, I want to say something that's going to make people just laugh? And uh, Solomon is saying, you hearing that laughter is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. They're laughing while they're burning, right? If you put a stick in the fire, you'll hear it crackle, right? <coughs> And a lot of times, that's just the moisture that comes from the stick, or sometimes the thorns in the stick get burned, and you hear this crackling. And it sounds good, but you look down, and you see it take a stick to burn to make that sound. Some of these things that people are laughing about, <laughs> they're laughing on their way to hell. That's why he said this is vanity. So then in the next mini section, right, verse 7 through 10, he starts to talk about things that get in the way of wisdom. 
things that get in the way of wisdom. The first thing you talk about oppression drives the wise and the madness, right? You could torture a person, even no matter how wise they are, you could torture a person until they break, basically, right? Until there is no more wisdom. So that's his first example, is to torture somebody. But he says, just like torture can break somebody's wisdom, so can a bribe. Now, we might think to ourselves, I'm not a judge. I can't be bribed. But we can be bribed in many ways. You look nice today, sister. Now, the next thing they're going to say is going to be ignorant. But you know what? If they hadn't have started with the compliment first, you might have smashed that down. But now that they started with the compliment, you feel hesitant to do that, right? Hey, I brought you a donut today. Oh, man, Islam is a beautiful religion. Right? Sometimes it'll literally happen like that. Somebody will do something nice and say something extremely foolish. And the whole thought of it is this, they're bribing you. Right? Somebody will say something nice about you. you oh, you the loving one. Oh, man, you so knowledgeable. Oh, man, you just got this beautiful voice. Whatever somebody come at you with a compliment, you need to try to think to yourself, what are they trying to get? Right? It costs them something to give that compliment to me. What do they want? The better is the end of a thing than its beginning. I've seen many movies, and I always, me and my brother always talk about this. The ending is way more important than the beginning. How are you going to end it? How are you going to wrap this story up? The premise can be good. I've seen lots of movies with some good premises, and the ending is like, it's not coming together. What matters to the movie? It has to have good bow ends. We talk about that in and writing, and the whole thought is, if you make a mess for the story, you have to tidy it up before you're done. So how something ends is more important than how it begins, but we often celebrate how something begins more than how it ends. It reminds me of how the President Obama, he got a Nobel Peace Award before he even started leading. Now that's utter foolishness. No matter what you think about him, one way or the other, to give somebody an award before they even do anything is utter foolishness. But he brought us hope. Well, do something first. That's what I want to see. I want to see action, not the start of something. And so it is with us. We started the church. How's it going to end? Is it going to die, slow death, or are we going to have a revival? We're going to let the numbers continue to dwindle and faithfulness continue to dry up? Or are we going to continue until the Lord returns? Well, that's my goal. I don't know about you. He says, do not be quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. How many times do we think of anger as some kind of form of superpower? Especially when I was younger and I was an athlete, I'd be like, you get mad out there, boy, and beat them. You'd be wrestling and somebody said, man, get mad. Is anger really that good of a thing? But it's one thing to be angry. It's another thing for anger to lodge in you. <laughs> the way he describes it. It lodges in the bosom of fools. Verse 10. Why were the former days better than these? The good old days. Were they really that good? 
People always say that, man, you know, back then we had this and that. But you just told me that you couldn't even drink at the same water fountain as a white person. What was so great about those days? Well, back then we was poor, but we was happy. <laughs> I don't know. You didn't maintain that, you know. It's a lot of things people will say about back then, but what we have right now came from back then. So there is no, there's not separate universes, right? It's not like 1980 doesn't have anything to do with 1981. The one led to the other. What we have today is what we had yesterday, just the beginnings of it. People say, man, now we got all these people having kids out of wedlock. Well, you probably taught them wrong. That's why they ended up like that, right? Something happened in the past that led them to think that that was okay, and that's what was the good old days when they was getting taught that. The last one of this section is wisdom is good with an inheritance. Wisdom is better than money, right? Wisdom is better than money. No, get me wrong, he says. Don't get me wrong. Money is good. Money can get you out of a lot of stuff. That's what he says. Look at what he said. Money is a defense. How many of us can shoot somebody and get away with it? None of us can, but OJ can. OJ can, because OJ got money. OJ can afford the dream team of lawyers, right? He can do that. Why? Because he got money. You got enough money, you can make stuff happen. Right? I mean, these rich guys, you be like, man, he ugly, but he got a beautiful girl. Why that happen? Because he got money. You got to ask yourself, if you don't understand how something is going on, there got to be some kind of money involved some way, right? How is them two together? Oh, money. But unlike money, wisdom gives life. Wisdom is a defense, too. Wisdom protects you, too. But wisdom gives you life. So let's summarize the things that you learn about wisdom in the very first 12 verses. Wisdom is worth going through hardship to get it. Wisdom can sometimes be unpleasant to get. But wisdom is a focus on the long term, not the short term. Wisdom focuses on the end goal, not always the beginning. Wisdom does not allow anger to reside in your heart. Wisdom doesn't look back on the past with fantasy glasses. And wisdom is better than money. So that's wisdom. Next section, maybe we'll get to that next week, or maybe not. But the next section is about faith, the wisdom of faith. All right. So we'll stop there. Any questions before we go to our meditation? All right. Let's get into our meditation today. If Nick can uh, help me out here. For our meditation, we're going to be in a brand new book. Book of Nahum. The cool thing about the book of Nahum is that if you take the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum, they are in many ways opposites, but it's like you flip the coin. 
The book of Jonah is about the city of Nineveh and about the Assyrians and about how Jonah, racist as he was, was sent by God to preach a message of repentance. And he didn't want to preach that message because he had a fear that God would repent, or God would have mercy on the people. He didn't want to do that. But God forced his hand and made him do it. And the people from Nineveh repented. And the book of Jonah is a challenge to the heart of pride for Israel who did not turn to the Lord the same way that the Ninevites did. Even though they was racist against them, they turned to the Lord and Israel stayed in their sins. But the book of Nahum is the opposite. It's about the book people of Nineveh. But in this one, a hundred years have passed and Nineveh has gone back to their evil ways. Is this the Lord is a jealous and avenging God the Lord is avenging and wrathful the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty his way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet he rebukes the sea and makes it dry he dries up all the rivers Bashan and Carmel wither, and the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like rabble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. For the house of your gods I will cut off. The carved image and the metal image I will make your grave. For you are vile. What's the theme of the first chapter? Well, sometimes when you study something, you just need to look at what's repeated many times. And I tried to say it a little bit different so it would stick in your head. But the theme is the Lord. And I guess I heard another pastor say this, that when he reads the scripture and he reads the Lord, he doesn't read the Lord, he reads Jehovah. And maybe I should have did that in this passage. Because it should make it personal to you that he's not just saying some impersonal title. He's saying his name. He's not saying the Lord is jealous and avenging God. He's saying Jehovah is a jealous and avenging God. Jehovah is avenging and, avenging and wrathful. Jehovah takes vengeance on his adversaries. Jehovah is the thing. What kind of God is Jehovah? 
Well, Jehovah is angry. He's an angry God. Why is he angry? He's angry because he has enemies. But is he angry as an out-of-control anger? Is he angry on a spur of a moment? Is, are we surprised by his anger? Verse 3 tells us the nature of his anger. He's slow to anger. For you to make Jehovah mad is to make somebody mad that never gets really mad. If you make Jehovah mad, you really messed up. He's already warned you a hundred times. When you make Jehovah mad, you deserve to make him mad. He didn't start mad. He gave lots of chances. And he warned you mostly by what happened in the past. He warned you by looking at the land of Egypt after the plagues. He warned you by looking at the land of Israel after they forsook God. He warned you by many of the people that judged the people of Israel and later get discarded. He warned you by the foolishness that we see out in the world and how it goes. Many people have hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of warnings before finally the judgment hits, but the judgment will hit. So he says, who can stand before his indignation? That's the prophet speaking. The prophet is trying to describe these things so we might know what is going on. One of the things we know about God is he has many characteristics. But the prophet is trying to tell us that the characteristic that matters the most in this book is that God judges. But the fact that God judges leads to verse 7. He judges because he's good. He's a stronghold in a day of trouble. How could he be a stronghold if he let those who mess with his people go away scot-free? How could we trust Jehovah if he didn't judge the enemy? How could we trust that he had a strong hand if he let people spit in his face? We would lose respect for Jehovah. It's the fact that he judges that lets us have faith that he loves us. Because it is the power of judgment that is also the power of salvation. Because his judgment is not just to destroy the enemy, it's to save his people. When the Lord returns in the day of the Lord, when Jesus Christ comes back with angels, tens of thousands of angels behind him, he's not just coming back to judge the world, he's coming back to save us. And when we meet with him, we will truly be saved. The Bible says this, that we look for that blessed hope, the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And the fact is, is that while we may say we're saved, when you look at salvation, it's really a future look. It's saying, one day I will be saved. Think of it this way. We are saved when we believe in Jesus Christ. We're being saved because the Holy Spirit is constantly protecting us, and we will be saved from this world when Jesus Christ returns, 
or when we die, we will meet with our Lord. And so that's our meditation. The book of Nahum is very powerful. But even though it's a message of judgment, I believe it has a message of hope for us. Any comments or questions before we go on? Let me turn it over to Brother Cliff. Always somebody was one of us at the hospital at all times. What a blessing to wake up in the middle of the night and see your daughter. Just spend the rest of our night praying for for that. I think we can. I found out about it. I said, "Oh, Donna's gonna be fine." I knew. I just knew it. I, I knew it. So I wasn't, you know. So uh, probably, and I hate to say it like this, but I probably worry more about Pastor than Donna. You know. <laughs> and I know, and and Pastor's strong, so. We're good. I, I already knew it. I just claimed it. I, I went all sanctified and claimed it. <laughs> so, uh, yes, sir. Trials and knock on the door or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, let's just pray because uh, the devil is pretty slick. He'll, you know, here's one thing I can say. We got to be doing something right here got to be doing something right so that that's what I believe so if we can just uh, divide into our groups and, and pray for for Donna and pastor for Brenda Adams for Lola Spears for many and through what he's going through so it's okay just talk to me I just, we do need to pray because listen we are under attack so no one would have ever thought it would be the sick sickness been doctoring, it's been this, that. No one ever, I never thought, sickening just caught me by surprise. So let's just pray. Uh, you can share your other uh, requests in your group, so if you want to split up and